everyone. Thanks for joining us again this week on Reality 2.0. I am Catherine Druckmann. Doc Searles is here, as well as Kyle Rankin, who I'm sure you all know. He is the CSO at Purism. And uh, you should look him up because Kyle's awesome. Um, Mm. (laughs) No pressure. Before we get into it, I'd like to invite everyone to visit our website at reality2cast.com, where you can sign up for our new weekly newsletter and find links to our various social media accounts and other ways to get in touch. We hope you'll join the conversation. We've been talking about <laughs> something that we're interested in. And and honestly, this this whole conversation goes back to basically my favorite tweet of the week. And it's something that Kyle shared and I picked up on. And it's a really interesting article by Kashmir Hill in the New York Times. So just to back up a little bit, you know, we've talked a lot on our podcast about privacy technology in terms of what, you know, tech giants and, and what other even potentially bad actors are doing in terms of uh, developing tools that maybe we don't approve of. But this time we're looking at something completely different. And that is what Kashmir Hill wrote about, which is individuals sort of trying to take back a little bit of the power. And, and in this case, the article was about an artist and a programmer, and both of them were sort of turning the tables on facial recognition and exposing images or exposing slash identifying police officers involved in protests who otherwise had attempted to hide their identities. So in the case of the programmer, he developed his own not for public use facial recognition software And to my knowledge, he hasn't actually shared any images publicly of people he's identified, but has been able to use it, I suppose, for his own private purposes as a uh, social activist. And the artist uh, put together an exhibition of images of police officers, which of course made a lot of uh, people very unhappy. So we we can talk about that a little bit later. And of course, we will link to this really fantastic article. But so we... We're thinking and talking about the ways in which technology impacts the balance of power. And it, it, it has historically been a bit of a seesaw. Sometimes it's sort of the underdog that, that becomes empowered by technology, and sometimes it's not. So that's, what, that's where we're going with this today. So the, the, uh, the first thing you mentioned, uh, the, the article is by Kashmir Hill of the New York Times. Um, I want to point out for people of a certain age like me uh, that she was in fact named after the Led Zeppelin song, Kashmir. <laughs> so, and she says that right on her, on her tweet. So, so there's actually more than one story here. Cause there's, yeah, cause there, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, 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 article the, goes into two different. Right, Cause shows. she's also got one about um, uh, a guy who was, she had an article called wrong, wrongfully accused by an algorithm. And the mm. first known case of its kind, faulty facial recognition led uh, to a Michigan man's arrest for a crime he didn't commit. So it's all, it's a, the question is, how is it FUBAR? And then what, what hacks can you do with it? So the, right. the story you were talking about is yeah, the guy's hack was actually turning it on to police, exactly. police as well. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, this person is yeah. rightfully accused of being a policeman. Right. Yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. definitely it's definitely true and verifiable but yeah so i mean while we're on the topic she she writes a lot of great articles so <laughs> i mean i'm a fan yeah, she so. does i'm afraid that's true so, i mean so. once you once you read you know read this one and then read all the others after but, uh, but yeah so these are these are interesting very interesting topics especially to people like us hence why we're talking about them um well 
Well, and one of the interesting contexts around this, around in the article around the person that was writing the facial recognition algorithm was that it, that it, he was doing it in the face of a new facial recognition legislation that was happening in his town that would prohibit um, the government from, and I guess companies perhaps, from using facial recognition technology, sort of like basically legislation that, that seems on its face to be something on its face that's pun always intended, um, that on its face seems like something that we would like. You know, let's put restrictions on how uh, those with power can use facial recognition technology and misuse facial recognition technology. But in this case, it sounds like one of the reasons that it's not been released um, among other like legal liability is perhaps concern over whether this falls afoul of this new legislation that would restrict this use. Of course, to my understanding, um, the databases that he's pulling from are just public Facebook posts and things like that. Like he's not yeah. accessing the rich trove of facial data that big tech companies have. No. And I yeah, think, he, I think that's because he's, he's focused on his own local area. He's focused on, um, you know, helping people make identifications, you know, on a, on a much, much smaller scale. Um, my, you know, my impression that he's doing a lot of sort of manual searching and, 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 and finding these, you know, hand, handful, relative handful of photos. But yeah, it's definitely not on the scale of like a Clearview AI or anything. But, and that's how that what that's what protects him under the law because he's not affected by the law is about police departments and corporations and such. It does not apply to individuals. So, and that's what allows him, you know, to, to do this. And even, you know, whether, aside from the fact that he hasn't actually released it publicly. So. Yeah. I, I an interesting so I, I i have pretty mixed feelings about it i mean on the one hand i think um i think that's a and artistically it's kind of a cool thing to do mm -hmm. and the fact that police departments have been surreptitiously using uh clearview ai and and tools like that to to do these kinds of things and this poor guy got wrongfully accused as well i haven't read the piece it just came out it's not actually not at, at this recording, it's not yet even in her list of pieces. I just went and looked, looked her up and there it was. But um, I grew up in a neighborhood, it's kind of a blue collar neighborhood and next door neighbor on one side was a New York State Highway Patrolman. Um, it's a captain with the New York State Highway Patrol across the street it was a New York City detective. Two doors down was um, you know, another a, a local cop and another one on the other side of that actually was what we all assumed was a mafia guy. Um, in fact, I never liked to watch the Sopranos because I grew up around those people. So I, I don't I've seen enough. Um, I never saw anything bad, but I enough to be scary. And but I've had a lot of sympathy with cops. They have a terrible job in some ways. You know, they're the ones when there's a terrible accident, they pick up the bodies off the road. They notify the next of kin there, you know, it's a, it's a hard job. And, and, you know, most, I think most cops are decent cops, you know, and I think most people don't go into the profession to be, to be bad. And yet at the same time, we know all of us profile people, we're profiling all the time. That's, we're built to do that. That's what part of what makes us human. And, you know, some of that, unfortunately, is, you know, has racial aspects to it. There are lots of tests you could take online that'll show you what your prejudices are without you even knowing them. And, um, and I, anyway, uh, but I, so, so I, 
you know, I, I worry about it a little bit because I don't want innocent cops to get hurt, you know, and I think there's a risk of that. But at the same time, I know, I don't know, I may not know a single black person who has not been hassled by cops. Oh, yeah, I've never met and, and, and like Biden said last night, it's something that for which Trump had no reply, you know, you know, you shouldn't have to be raising your kids to, you know, keep your hands on the steering wheel, never reach for the glove compartment, yeah. you know, take all of these precautions because you're being profiled by the police whenever you're stopped. Um, and it's, that's an awful way to live. I have a long way to correct, but facial recognition is just, you know, I think I said before, my own feeling about it is that um, the, you know, it's one of those things kind of like hand, hand powered nukes, who wants these, you know, it's like, maybe we should restrict it to the point where, um, you know, the only facial recognition you should have is the kind that where your phone recognizes you. That's it. I mean, and, and those parameters are only known by your own phone or something like that, where you have the facial recognition. Um, that's sort of where I've come down now, but you know, it's a very big cat that's out of a lot of bags. I was just going to say like some of what you're talking about is also the, some of the problems with it has, has to do with scope, you know, just like, for example, if you live in a small town, everyone knows everybody. And it's mm -hmm. one thing for everyone in a small town to know the gossip of everybody in the small town. Uh, and that's just sort of part of that. But, but the scale of that going, expanding out to the entire world makes it a very different thing. The same thing with facial recognition software. It's the, the power that happens at scale. The same thing with all of these, with pretty much everything we talk about with privacy is mm -hmm. uh, it's one thing when it's at a very small scale and it becomes a very different thing when it's on a massive scale, you know? And so, it, but sometimes like in this case, I think a lot of, a lot of these concerns are, they're not hypothetical because they're very real but they aren't felt by those who have those capabilities because they already have them. They're not, I guess, not taken as seriously if you already have this power until you have a case like this where someone um, has this capability who otherwise wouldn't, like some an individual. The same thing goes for, you know, now that everyone has a camera in their pocket, you know, before everyone had a camera in their pocket, authorities certainly had surveillance cameras going everywhere, looking mm -hmm. at everything and documenting everything. Uh, but having individuals with that capability changed um, how everyone thinks about it. And, you know, and so people were start, I think one of the ways to get proper legislation or regulation on some of these technologies is by it being ubiquitous and in the hands of everybody, because then it affects everybody instead of just those without power. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. It, it, if nothing else, it raises awareness of the concern. But I think, as, as Doc mentioned earlier, I, you know, I think at some basic level, if we're against surveillance we, and, and facial recognition, we should be against surveillance and, and facial recognition. Um, you know, but, but that said, you know, I, I do understand, well, I do understand from an artistic perspective, certainly, and I do also understand from a, an activism perspective, there's a, there's a defensive posture here, you know, that, that seems relevant. Like if, you know, if they're gonna if they're gonna use the the tools against you and don't don't seem to uh, be willing to back off, you know enough. At what point do you feel like your only choice is to develop some of these tools for yourself? But you know, and then I don't know. The ethical questions are are complex and and certainly not black and white. And that's why I'm not okay. necessarily in favor in favor of it, because it, just it's not as clear cut as all of that. I mean, yeah. I I think the story is interesting in that 
it's things like this that often you have to have before you get the kinds of protections that we would all here like to see on the uses of facial recognition technology. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on one hand, I don't want a bunch of individuals going out, scanning everyone in public spaces and, you know, doxing me when I go out to the grocery store, you know, I I wouldn't like that. Uh, Then there's a different level where, where you are doing it to people who are operating on behalf of the government. Um, But then there's a question of whether that's okay or not. And then, you know, then it extends further past that. But yet to me, you know, I, it still gives me the creeps, the idea of individuals walking around scanning the faces of everyone they see, um, and then hoping that they are correctly, you know, only identifying cops at a protest and, and you know, and, and figuring out who they are. Uh, but, but at the same time, the, the fact that they're, so I'm not a fan of that, uh, just because of the overall implications. But if it, but I am, I do see it as a way that perhaps people will take some of this uh, regulation seriously uh, if this capability gets in individuals' hands. So I think, I mean, the other question is, how do you even regulate it? I mean, so, you know, if somebody's willing to be high profile and willing to go public, you know, with, with software, you know, talk about software that they've written, which they didn't, didn't have, he didn't have to, he could have just (laughs) kept it a secret and no one would ever know. But, um, but, you know, tech finds a way, you know, it's, is it possible to prevent, you know, once people have established that they have this, this capability, is it really possible to prevent other people from doing it? As long as we are willing to put our images out there publicly on the internet and, and, and as long as we have maybe little control in certain, in certain areas of how much information about us is publicly available, how, how can you really prevent something like this from being, becoming the norm? I mean, if it's a technical, if it's trivial to, to or, you know, not to disparage anybody's uh, capabilities, I mean, maybe this guy's a genius, but if, it's, if he can do it, other people can do it, and how do you slow them down? assuming that you want to, which possibly you do. And I'm not sure all of it is. I mean, some of this is. Yeah. Go, go, go ahead, Cal. Sorry. Oh, go ahead. I, I did the last time. Oh, okay. I, 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 I was, was just going to say, I mean, some of this is, is consents, you know, like, can you, if someone takes a picture of you, can you, and say you publish a picture of yourself online or someone else publishes a picture of you online. Um, does that mean now it's there forever? You know, right now everyone assumes, well, once it's there, it's there forever. The internet never forgets, but the internet could be made to forget uh, if you don't consent. And so yeah. there, there could be a possibility later if you say, I don't want, you know, essentially to license things that belong to you. And perhaps you have a license on how you want your, your images to be used. And perhaps that license doesn't allow it to be used for facial recognition. Yeah. And th- there's already a market for, for that, right? There are, there, are, there are companies that will remove your information and images and whatnot from the internet or they'll do their best anyway but then at yeah. the same time does then it become a, a a tool only of the privilege to be able to erase your your uh, online history so a, a couple of things one is that uh the state of new jersey uh, the the uh, i don't know who it was i put it in our own little chat there um but but uh the, the authority there said we're not going to do we're, we're going to get rid of clearview ai our cops are not allowed to use clearview ai or 
facial recognition like that. Uh, meaning that that kind of act activism might not be relevant or welcomed in New Jersey because you know they already got the clues. Um, on the other hand, and, and different thought, I was thinking about some people who I will not name because I don't want to embarrass them, but the, the, that I know whose mother took a, a huge number of photographs and so many of them that, and these are print photographs. This is from, this is you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Um, she was gone. They were emptying out the house where she had lived and they've been renting it out for a while. And they're just, you know, we're going through all this archival stuff and there are piles and piles of photos. Some of them are quite good, but they didn't know who these people were. And, and they decided that if there are pictures of people they knew like them, um, because these are their ki her kids, her grown kids, um, they keep them. But if there were people they didn't know, you know, they'd throw them. And I thought, if they were good photos, why throw them, you know? So, and maybe they'd be valuable to the people who there are pictures of, right? So without resolving that particular dilemma, I wanted to point to somebody who I think embodies the dilemma, whose name, her name is Vivian Meyer, M-A-I-E-R. Uh, she's a photographer, and but nobody knew she was a photographer except that she took a lot of photographs that nobody ever saw. She was a nanny. Um, Nobody knew exactly where she was from. She had an accent. She was tall, kind of imperious. Um, but nobody, she didn't really get into the public eye until this guy um, basically put in a bid for uh, a, um, a storage, you know, a storage unit that had, uh, had not paid its bills. And they do that. They'll auction off whatever's in a storage unit. I've got a box here. What will somebody give me? I'll give you five bucks, give you 25 bucks, give you 50 bucks. This guy on a hunch paid 300 bucks for a box. In it were hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of rolls of unexposed film. And it turned out these belonged to this woman, Vivian Meyer. And it gives me chills talking about it. She wasn't just a photographer. She was like a Beethoven. She was like amazing. And so there, and they made a, a movie, the kid, the kid who did this, he's a young man, he's in his twenties, did a film called Finding Vivian Meyer that kind of embodies all the conflicts here. Did she want to be known ever? Which did you just do this obsessively? She didn't go to the trouble of developing most of this film. She shot it in large format with a Rolleiflex, um, uh, which I think is 120 millimeter film, very high, uh, low grain, uh, highly detailed stuff, mostly street photography. But the people in there, nobody knows who these people were. It's mostly shot in the 50s and 60s, um, maybe even in the 40s also. Uh, they're not identified there, but they're there, they're in her work and her work has been published. And, and one senses this in the documentary, a bit of invasiveness to it, both to her life and to the people she photographed. But at the same time, the art of it is so spectacular um, that it kind of embodies all the, I mean, I would love to do some facial recognition on this. Did you know you were in this photograph? But some of the photos were kind of embarrassing and, some of these people clearly felt weirded out by this woman sticking a camera in their face. Um, so it's an interesting question. I, and and I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for it, except that the level of art involved, like, like the one that this guy did with the, with the photos of the cops was high. So speaking of photos and going back to the, the idea that, you know, tech finds a way, you know, I, I often wonder if the pursuit of, privacy will lead to sort of a, 
Oh gosh, I, you know, build a tall, build a higher wall and we'll build a, a taller ladder kind of situation where, you know, hmm. as, as, um, as I said earlier, tech finds a way to develop apps that a lot of people are less and less comfortable with, you know, there will be other people developing technology to counter those things at all times. And this is, you know, an, a never ending cycle, maybe. Um, I, I was reminded uh, of a, an article that also Cashmere Hill you know, wrote a couple months ago that I read about an app um, that will disguise images you put online so that they block facial recognition software. It's like a cloaking kind of, I don't know if, I think it just adds sort of like noise to the, to the photo, but it doesn't necessarily affect our ability, you know, of the visual appeal of the photo. You still look like you, but facial recognition can't pick up on it. You know, and I just... That seems to me to be an example of, of the sort of like cat and mouse that that we're going to be playing with each other, you know, for for well, who knows how you know forever maybe, you know, as we uh, develop more and more technologies that maybe we shouldn't have, we're going to have to <laughs> somebody else on the other hand is going to have to develop something to counter it at all times. I mean, it's just like virus and antivirus software, right? Yeah, I wonder, you know, with with facial masks. I mean, right now. It's so pro forma to wear facial masks uh, when you're out. Anyway, but my, my, my point, though, is, is here in Santa Barbara, people wear masks if they're out. In fact, it's required. I mean, you can't, you can't go into the CVS store. There's a sign in the front. You can't get in here unless you've got a mask on. Or they, they put a facial covering, some, something like that. There's a word for it. But it's much harder to read people's expressions, right? You can't, you see the eyes, but you can't see the smile. If there's a smile or a frown, it's harder to tell. You kind of have to just pick it up from the eyes. And it's, it's a little bit weird, you know? At, at the same time, your phone, if your phone does, it recognizes your face, good luck if you're wearing a mask because it doesn't see the, all your parts, right? And I think there's a similar thing going on for people. You know, who, who is that? I mean, remember, um, you probably don't remember, but the Lone Ranger always seemed weird to me. <laughs> or that, or that, you know, uh, Clark Kent wasn't recognizable as, as mm. Superman because he wore glasses. You know? yeah, the like, ultimate that, cloaking device. You know, I can I can take my glasses off. I'm afraid I'm the same guy, right? You know, but Superman, no, he puts glasses on and he's suddenly Clark Kent. But well, that's he, his hair was also parted on the other side. That's right. So. That's right. That was one of his superpowers, right? <laughs> and that completely throws people off. Yeah. Well, I don't, there yeah. was something in those glasses. I mean. Obviously. It probably was, yeah. Hallucinogenic yeah. spores. Yeah. Well, no, it was. It, it was a. Uh, I think that was a sort of a higher level statement on society, a philosophical thing about people seeing what they want to see. You know, it, it, I think That's it was true. really DC yeah. Comics talk talking about prejudice, right? And right. you know, Clark Kent was a nerdy reporter, so there's no way that he could be yeah. thought of as as a Superman. Mm -hmm. Also, he couldn't get the girl. Right, you know, and and he never yeah. took off his sport coat, so you could see he was actually buffed. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you know, yeah. Superman had a you know he had a six pack, he had a great body on him, but Clark Kent didn't. Right, uh, actually he did, but you know, never took his jacket yeah. off. Well, see, that would be so, fun though. It it would be fun to take modern surveillance technology and throw it back into you know nineteen fifties comic books and solve all of the cases. It's sort of like all of the horror movies from the 70s and 80s and early 90s would, wouldn't work in the modern age because of cell phones. It's how many plots 
uh, of stories wouldn't work. They have they now have to backdate mm-hmm. so many stories so they can tell them without cell phones, because otherwise there's no plot. Um, yeah. You'd just be defeated. It's the same sort of thing here. I think it'd be interesting to have. Oh, you're Batman. I can tell because I can. I did gate recognition while you were walking. And even though you talk like this when you're Batman, you know, we were able to modulate yeah, yeah, that yeah. and figure out your your cadence of your voice. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's funny how many movies don't, you don't have to go, go that far back actually for things to just totally fall apart plot wise. If you were, you know, in today's world, you know, because, you know, you know, your inability to find somebody even is like, that's, that's a ridiculous concept today. In the late eighties, the guys, you know, the- well, like, like the Seinfeld episode, the Seinfeld episode when they're at the Chinese restaurant and they can't get in and they're waiting in the waiting room. You know, the whole episode is them standing in the waiting room to get into mm-hmm. this Chinese restaurant. Um, in the with the cell phone, they would have booked another restaurant down the street, had a table, and walked right. over to it. And by the time they got there, they would have walked in. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, I was thinking about the, the the early cell phone period where where you had a cell phone the size of a shoe, with an antenna <laughs> sticking out mm-hmm. of it, right? And 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 now that looks so antique. It actually looks probably more antique than an old fashioned movie that has a phone on a cradle or a, you know, or a payphone on a wall. I always liked that the. Uh, that um, Blade Runner, which was set in a year ago, last month or next month, rather, it was set in November tw- 2019. That's how it, that's the first title you see on the movie it was November 2019. Um, they've got they've got payphones, <laughs> they're flying <laughs> flying cars and payphones. Payphones, yeah, <laughs> too funny. So, so speaking of technology that no longer exists, uh, maybe. Maybe we could transition into technology that shouldn't exist. <laughs> mm. So, um, so you know, we, we've well, we've kind of hinted around that we don't really necessarily think uh, facial recognition should. But another thing that that you know we've talked about uh, online, you know, not not here today, is um, uh, uh, police uh, mobile forensic tools. So that's that's something that that uh, has been written about quite a bit and and written about quite a bit recently because of you know protests and 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 that sort of thing and um, the rea- new reality that we find ourselves in um, and I wondered if we could maybe kind of uh, give some thoughts about that so. So the the idea, and Kyle could probably, you know, is probably the best one to to go into a little bit more detail about the capabilities of this type of forensic software. But um, uh, the idea is that law enforcement agencies are are using this kind of uh, forensic tool on people's devices, not necessarily with a warrant, and you know, even with or without a warrant. I mean, we've talked about how personal, personal devices are here. And it's honestly the, you know, I feel like it's the the next best thing to, or the next worst thing to literally scanning somebody's brain. There's really nothing more intimate that you could, that you could get your hands on than somebody's mobile device. Um, you know, in my opinion is that mm. maybe, maybe they shouldn't have this technology at all. They should never use it on anybody ever, warrant or not. But I wondered, uh, Kyle, if you wanted to, to kind of, Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, basically, this sort of capability has been around for a while, and it's it's also in place. You know, if if um, 
the feds are going to bust down your door and confiscate your computers. You know, there's also, you know, the ability for them to get a, a clean forensics image of your computer so that they can then, you know, search for things. But, but along the lines of a phone, uh, because there's this great market in uh, phone O-days for the government, uh, where they'll pay, you know, quite a bit of money for, for these sorts of things, that, you know, there's also off-the-shelf uh, hardware that they can get with off-the-shelf, well, off-the-shelf in the sense that they can, you know, pay a contractor for it. But that allows you to, you know, they plug plug your phone into it, and then, you know, lock screen or not, it exploits things to then be able to get a copy. And, you know, how exactly it might exploit your phone depends on the phone and depends on a couple of factors. But in essence, the idea is to be able to quickly slurp down the data on your phone. And of course, you know, these days, our phones don't have gigantic amounts of storage compared to a computer. I mean, part of it, their goal is to put, you know, a lot of vendors want you to put it on the cloud instead. So it's not that big of a deal once you can get access to the data on a phone that's running, um, then that's, you know, it's unlocked in the sense that you have a lock screen, but it, everything's unencrypted because everything's running. If you can exploit that and then slurp down all of the data, then you can analyze it and, and you know, get all of the interesting things that might be on your phone, you know, photos, of course, um, con, you know, any logs of, of conversations, that sort of thing. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's a, yeah, exactly. All of those sorts of things that are very, that could be seen to be very useful, but it's also incredibly revealing, of course. It's like the, the most intrusive search you can imagine. But it's also done relatively quickly, right? And in many cases, you know, there's not necessarily a warrant. You could, if you turn your phone locked or not over to somebody, then they could potentially plug in plug in this device and get this data. And it turns out that they've been doing it a lot, um, mostly or, because there haven't been many restrictions on this, you know, in place. So, so could you? What do you know about where these things are being used? I mean, is this something that I would want, I would worry about, let's say, um, re-entering the country, crossing a border, whatnot, going to a protest. Um, like, wh where, where should I be concerned about that? And and it, should I be concerned about non-law enforcement? You know, like actual crim criminals using this kind of stuff to slurp data off of my phone. Um, I mean, to me, definitely, if you're crossing a border, there's enough resources in place that if someone wanted to confiscate your phone because you know maybe you're not complying with whatever they're requesting. You know, a lot of times if, if you are crossing a border and you don't comply with whatever search requests, there's, it's funny, when you talk to a lot of geeks about border crossing, they all instantly turn into spies and they have all these incredibly convoluted <laughs> You know, steganography kinds of stuff, and you know, and they turn into spies on paper. But you also know that they are the worst liars in the world. And customs agents are professional lie detectors. I mean, they have people trying to smuggle drugs under their noses every single day. You know, and they're and they are just trained to detect that sort of thing. And so, the um, the idea that you could, as a geek, cross the border with smuggled data somehow, steganography in steganography on your phone or some other weird, you know, I have a hidden partition that I, you know, I, or I gave them, I gave them a duress code. There's all kinds of different measures mm -hmm. that, you know, that see, seem good if you're, if you are watching a spy movie, but don't <laughs> really make sense if you think of yourself as the worst liar and customs yes. agents as the best lie detectors on the planet, which Aren't is they? what they are, right? And so the best way, yeah. So the best way to comply with, to cross a border is to, be able to turn over whatever you need to the government uh, if they're requesting it and not have it 
violate your privacy or compromise your data, any sensitive right. data. So for most people, that means not crossing the border with anything that you would care if it were to be confiscated. Right. Don't, don't um, carry around. All so, this. I mean, that's my when people ask me naked photos of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you yeah, don't, don't carry, carry around stuff that you would want to be taken away. Yeah. Yeah. You just don't, you know, so if so, yeah, definitely in certain, especially I'm sure in certain high trafficked, uh, well-resourced borders where people where the you know authorities can afford this kind of technology then I'm sure that it's in place where if you, if say you're, you seem to be someone who is of interest that, and isn't complying it to some degree, they can confiscate your phone for an hour, let's say detain you for an hour, confiscate your phone, use the software and hardware to get an image of it. And then send you on your way perhaps, um, or maybe do a cursory, you know, thumbs up, thumbs down on the data and then look into it more later. Right. So across the border, certainly, and cert I, I'm, I'm sure um, in terms of local law enforcement, I think it probably depends on I, I think the, the story you're talking about talks about some, a study on how frequently it's been used in certain areas. But I don't recall where, except I would say that, you know, a little small town somewhere probably doesn't have access to the same level of tech that a big city might. Right. Um, to do this now, the question is whether you know someone who a highway, but someone in highway patrol who pulls you over, will they automatically have that in their squad car? I don't know. Um, I, I'm not sure the answer to that. Maybe it depends. I'm just wondering, like you know, I'm I'm not really I'm not thinking in terms of actual, you know, criminals. I'm talking. I'm I'm thinking more about you know the the rest of us. You know, your, your average I don't know 25 year old guy who. Um, maybe has some strong feel strong enough political views that he wants to go to a protest or a march or whatnot and maybe finds himself in a situation where he's been detained but he's also a guy who is a normal person and you know he has stuff on his phone that he doesn't want everybody to see you know being, you know not not that i'm judging an entire gender but he may or may not be likely to have pictures of his um body parts that he doesn't want the world to see or maybe he doesn't you know maybe he uh his location history is not the most flattering or may maybe he is um in in the closet and he doesn't want the entire world to know that he goes to gay bars and that would be stored on his phone you know it's you know i can think of lots of scenarios where you just you don't want the information on your device shared with anybody and mm -hmm. and i just wonder like could see it seems likely that that sort of a person could find themselves in a compromised yeah. position, they, you know, thus in, inadvertently sharing all of this data. Well, they could be, they could be blackmailed. Um, I mean, there's lots of possibilities there. And I mean, and I, I was just thinking if, if, if there, if a blackmail case, then you may actually have to share that data with the cops too, if you want to pursue somebody who's blackmailing you. Yeah. But here, here's, I had a couple of thoughts while, while you were going over that stuff. When one was, with the amount of, especially international travel going down as much as it has, it's quite possible that the percentage of people who are criminals that are traveling overseas or out of the country are higher than it used to be um, because people aren't traveling on business, they aren't traveling for pleasure. Um, but if you have international uh, um, intrigue to pursue, perhaps you're has uh, a better chance of getting caught. It's just a thought. Uh, but another one is, and I'm going back to the, the the, the, the episode we did with uh, Augustine Fu a couple of weeks ago and thinking about, wow, you know, so if the advertisers can tell where you've been 
by the cookies that have been deposited in your browser or in your phone, because your phone has a browser in it or multiple browsers in it and, and have apps in it that are busy following you as well. Could the cops interrogate those? You know, and, and, but especially with, with cookies too. I mean, a, a lot of those are, are locational based, but, they're, but they, keep, they keep track of the sites you've been to. Um, they reveal a great deal about you to, and they're meant to reveal it to others as a matter of course, as part of business. That you know, having cookies narking on your on your habits and whereabouts and the rest of it, so you could be advertised at, are really good markers for for a person, right? Uh, for law enforcement purposes, and I, I don't know if those guys have, and they're not just guys, but I mean, if they've looked into that at all, and do you think they have? I have no idea. I mean, I'm sure that that's part of overall. Um, it, any sort of automated tool that would scan through people's phone or their computer for compromising data or to build some sort of, you know, rap sheet on somebody uh, would, I'm sure it would, if it, on the web browser, would collect and analyze browser history plus cookies and all of that and, and come up with some sort of um, document uh, summary of, of where you've been and what you've been up to. Uh, yeah, I mean, this... The thing is, is we we talked before about how there are there's there are laws and sort of principles and policy in the in sort of like the physical world that haven't yet adapted to you know the the digital world. And this is yet yet another case of this where you know someone, if you getting pulled over for speeding in your car, um, doesn't automatically mean a police officer is going to follow you home and and ransack your house. You know, but Digitally speaking, you know, a search of your phone is at least as intrusive as ransacking your house, and in some cases, possibly more intrusive than what they would find ransacking your house. Uh, but it's not treated that way. You know, it's not treated as the mo yet, although there's been some movement to to change this. But it's not treated as intrusive of a search as it can be. I mean, there's even, you know, some cases where uh, what the only thing that has prevented someone's phone from being analyzed was the fact was the type of uh, authentication they used to unlock it uh, because it was a password instead of biometrics. The, they, you know, they had they there have been rulings that said biometrics could be coerced or taken from you, but um, arguably you you may not you may not be compelled compelled to uh, release your password because it's in your brain, which you know is somewhat arbitrary. I understand the precedent behind all of that, but it's still. You know, regardless, it's you know you you made a choice to unlock your phone, one way or the other, or didn't. Uh, however, you chose to do authentication, then apparently determines whether the search can go through, which doesn't make sense to me. No, it really doesn't. And I think I think that goes to the point of you know technology. It technology is always way out ahead out ahead of our ability to regulate it or legislate it or or, or whatnot. And and. Um, you know, I think I think the important thing, regardless of whether you feel have whether you feel it's legitimate to have access to these things, to people's devices and to this information or not, is to be able to at least define what it is. You know, and I think that's probably the role that technologists need to play is is at least educating people about you know what this access really means. You know, what 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 data are you giving up? Um, even by by owning a device and by attending a protest or by you know what what exactly are the vulnerabilities? You know, I, I think you can't know. I mean, I think that's part of the part of the issue. You you can't. Uh, 
Uh, or if you can, you're going to need the same powers that the that the investigators have. I mean, I, I was looking the other day at, okay, where are my, are my cookies? How many do I have here? Well, I've got over a thousand. What are they? Well, some say Adobe or Amazon on them, but, um, but most of them don't say anything. They don't reveal much about themselves at all, but they may carry information uh, of some sort that, that I have no idea about. They certainly have carry information I have no idea about, but they're there. And, and that's just one, you know, and, and there are also fingerprinty things, right? There are patterns to what I'm doing that are, mm-hmm. that are, that, that comprise fingerprints that could be used to identify me. Uh, but there's, I mean, there's just a, I mean, yeah. I mean, our, our devices are, are, are inherently surveillant, <laughs> right? They're, yeah, that's, they're really good for that. Um, yeah. And it's just, you know, again, I, I like to use the word intimate, which is maybe the wrong word, but I, I, think word, it, I think it works. It's the yeah, most intimate of things is also the, the thing that's selling you out the most. So another thing that actually, another topic that well, dovetails and- nicely, um, that I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about is uh, so in the UK, I read, so I read an article that in the UK, um, so people who use contract tracing apps and then are required by law to, you know, once you've been identified as either having been exposed or infected, you are legally required to quarantine. And these apps are apparently handing over data to police. So, you know, this is something we talked about, you know, months and months ago, actually, with Bruce Schneier's, you know, why, why he thought contact tracing apps wouldn't work. But um, th- I don't recall that this was actually one of our considerations. But, but now, you know, we're getting into the place where people are just not, you know, participating there. You, you, you get to a point where if, if people are aware that this information could be shared with law enforcement and that that could have a negative impact on them. Well, they just opt out. They, they make sure that you don't know about their contact or their risk level or, or whatnot so that they are never ordered to quarantine in the first place. That's undermining the entire public health benefit, which I thought was kind of interesting and a little bit, um, I don't know. It wasn't surprising. Mo- you know, most commentary I've seen on it has just been sort of like, well, whoever thought this was a good idea did not think it through. Well, well here's a fun thing. I um, well, it's it's like. Yeah. I'll, I'll just say this quickly. I, I have friends in Australia, New Zealand, who were telling me, "Come on down here. All you have to do is quarantine for 14 days for two weeks." Um, but then after that, this is the this is the the carrot. Um, well, you don't actually you don't have to wear a mask and you don't have to socially distance as much as you do in the U.S. because, because we're taking care of it. We're, the whole country is quarantined, or the, in the case of Australia's whole states. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting because maybe you might want to do that if you're willing to, if you're willing to hide out for 14 days, but then you get to be free in a way you're not in the U.S. That's an interesting thing. If it's true, I don't even know it's true. But that's what they said. Well, and that, that kind of goes back to the power of compartmentation, which is something I wanted to touch on a little bit, sort of with our previous topic was, you know, if if you have all of your browser history and all of the things that you do and all of your cookies and all of everything in a single browser, then it's certainly really revealing. But there are, you know, that's one thing I try to do a bit with how I use computers is to set up little compartments for activities so that either the risk of exposure of one thing versus the other mm-hmm. is lower, or at least I have a sense of 
what it is, it, there's also just practical benefits. I've talked, we've talked in the past how I do this for Facebook, where Facebook has its own little special bucket that I only do Facebook in um, over, even over tour so that it's, you know, all of that's compartmentalized in its own thing. But I also do this, for instance, for, I, you know, I watch a lot of van life YouTube videos uh, from various people. But it's it's not just the privacy aspect, but also just the pain of their recommendations algorithm. If someone, you know, if you want to watch want value and rec recommendations for a topic, it's really awful if someone sends you a random video that you then watch in that same account, because now your recommendations are all messed up, right? Um, so by I isolate all of my van life YouTube videos with a particular Google account with a particular browser and only watch that type of stuff there. So their naive recommendations engine only hopefully shows me things I'm training it to show me um, and not whatever random YouTube video I happen to watch in a different context. It's sort of like, you know, you have, you have some people that have uh, clicks of friends and they never, you know, if they were throwing a party, they, they may have groups of friends that never meet each other because they have different shared interests. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that only digitally. Yeah. I just realized I have eight different browsers that I use. I thought it was five, but I'm looking at the stack of logos I've got over here where I've collected them in the in the app directory and there are eight that I use. I mean, some not that much, but there are a couple I use for privacy purposes, Tor and Epic. I both use those for entirely privacy purposes. Um, but there are, you know, there are six others besides those, you know, and for the same reason. I, I mean, I have, special, I have specialized yes, purposes for those, you know. Um, uh, I was thinking of something with video um, that's, uh, oh, I know what it was that I, I'm actually surprised at how poorly um, the different video services know what I want or like. I think maybe because I researched so many different things that may, that are of a very passing interest because I'm just like searching for something I'm writing about or thinking about and may not visit again for any reason, but then, oh, you looked at this before. Um, you know, Amazon is especially bad at guessing what I'm actually looking for because there's always something else. <laughs> it's not the things I've, I've looked at before. Oh, a funny thing with Netflix, by the way, was, you know, in a Netflix account, you have a number of different people in the household, right? And, um, and basically here we have my wife and me, that's it. And suddenly out of nowhere, Netflix decided I needed to see everything in Spanish, dubbed into Spanish. And I actually, you know, you couldn't talk to them on the phone, but I got them on the chat and they couldn't fix it. They just couldn't fix it. So it doesn't even matter anymore. Everything I've watched on that Netflix is now kind of lost to me. I, every so often I'll go back over and look at it and see, am I still Spanish? I guess I am. Okay. Yeah, I'm still Spanish. We watch it all on my wife's account. <laughs> you know, these systems are imperfect. Wow. Yeah. You know, I, oh, I, I, that also Sorry. suggests how, how algorithm, algorithmic profiling is not as good as human profiling. This is the thought, you know. You know, even well, if our... Yeah, well, yeah. it's not in the closer it gets to being okay. Well, it's, the closer it gets yeah, to being... The creepier. Yeah. Reasonably good, the, the creepier it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The uncanny valley of... Yeah, of you go into the uncanny algorithm. valley. So, so the thing I mentioned earlier, you know, this... Um, uh, uh, contact tracing thing. Um, so the issue is that police are getting access to the people who have been told to isolate by the National Health Service in the UK. 
they're they have a test and trace app they have i think they are maybe it's not just an app actually maybe it's just you know you know actual uh old school contact tracing um but yeah so people if, if you fail to comply you your information can be turned over to the police and so the concern is that people just people either won't get tested they won't you know they won't they won't allow themselves to be put in the position of being ordered to quarantine in the first place by wh whatever that means. And uh, which is, you know, definitely runs counter to, to uh, everyone's best interest, you know, health wise. And I just wonder how that's sort of a, I don't know, an allegory for, <laughs> for something, you know, for, for the, the larger conversation about um, the vulnerability of our, of our information. Or maybe it's not at all, and, and this well, is a it, complete it tangent. Well, it demonstrates it demonstrates how people care about privacy, uh, depending on who what who the data is being shared with. You know, there's a lot of there are a lot of systems that in the U.S. or elsewhere people would not put up with the government instituting. However, they're more than happy to institute it themselves. You know, if if a company, you know, if a tech company sells them a device that promises X, Y, and Z, you know, like we would not put, if the government forced everyone to put a ring on their door, you know, we would, people would rebel. It would be crazy, but people are more, ha more than happy to do it voluntarily and have the same kind of system in place de facto. Um, if it's not, if they think the data is just being shared with Amazon and then I guess optionally law enforcement, if they tick a box. That's a, that's a really good point. And I think it's the same thing here. I think you have people, yeah, I think people in this case, you know, if you were to say, well, we're just sharing the data with Google or Apple, they might say, well, that, I guess that's okay. They already have everything else. Um, but the idea of it not only being shared with law enforcement, but that there's consequences right. that directly impact them personally. I mean, I'm surprised that there aren't more people there pranking the system and walking in a crowd and triggering the I have COVID button, whatever that is, yeah. and then, you know, forcing an, forcing a crowd to be quarantined for, you know, a couple of weeks. That, well, there's a scary thought, <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't, um, yeah, that's a, you know, I, I actually, I don't know if the, the article that I, I read, because I don't know how, how, I don't know what sort of tracing, um, the UK government is, is implementing, but, but I think, you know, the bottom line is if you're, if the consequences of whatever action ultimately could lead you to a, you know, $10,000 fine, you know, that, that is a deterrent for, from, you know, it's a deterrent, but not the deterrent that they want it to be. They don't, it's not necessarily a deterrent for, from a lack of compliance. It's a deterrent from, um, you know, from anything at all, you know, even, even the, the practical aspects of participating in, in that sort of a tracing. An interesting thought that, uh, and maybe I brought this up last week. And if I did forgive the redundance is, uh, Tim O'Reilly talked about this and I rather like it where he, you talked about it in May uh, that that the 20th century, I mean the 21st century begins now. That the 20th century started with um, World War One, and it ended uh, this year um, with COVID. And and the 21st century begins with COVID, and uh, it'll end with something else. But that that this is bracketing the 21st century. That the 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 size of the reset button that just got hit by the world having to quarantine and cope with a, a pandemic is so large that it's uh, it's interesting i don't know we'll see yeah so, i mean that's i'm 
that's how I'm, you know, one way that I, one method I'm using to help, you know, with my kids sort of dealing with all of the things that he has to go through because of this is explaining to him, you know, when you are, when you are a grandparent, you will be explaining to your grandchild, what it, grandchildren, what it was like to be alive during this famous year where all of yeah, these things happened yeah. and how you had to stay home and how you couldn't play with other kids and all of that stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. Everybody went around in masks and everybody was hyper careful. And when it started out, I remember when it started out, it was like, it's on surfaces, it's on surfaces everywhere and wear, wear gloves and, 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 and put this stuff in your hands. And, and now it's, you know, for a few months, it's been, you got to wear the mask. It's all airborne, you know, which apparently was known in January, but uh, that wasn't what they were saying. You know, they were saying then too, but the, the big thing was to wear, uh, to me to, to wash your hands and, and not touch anything. I mean, we didn't even get our mail when he came out here. Just, you know, oh, I was super, it. super. Uh, I still yeah. actually quarantine my mail. <laughs> I just toss it in a box in the yeah, garage yeah, you and put you know, it, go, you put go it, get it later. But that's kind of what I do anyway. You have to let it cure somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like it's a, probably a pretty good time for, for kids to keep old fashioned diaries. You know, I think uh, they're going to want that when they're, well, when they're grandparents yeah. or even, even uh, in a few years, they're, they're going to want to look at that. Um, so I, this is totally random, but the, the, um, sort of surveillance, privacy, turning the tables conversation makes me want to bring up something that, um, well, we may or may not want to talk about, but that is, uh, the new Borat movie. <laughs> so, I, so, you know, the comedian. I've seen Sasha the trailer. Baron, yeah. I'm not seeing the movie. Well, I'm a fan. I think he's very funny. Um, he's great. But he engages in a lot of the sort of gotcha, gotcha sort of comedy, you know, involving, you know, trapping, well, trapping. It's cruel. It is cruel. It is definitely cruel. Yeah. And I just wonder, like, I yeah. wonder how, how that sort of thing applies to the, the, the ethics conversation that we have. Like, is it okay to, to um, send an actress in to, to convince Rudy Giuliani to put himself in a very compromising position for comedy. I mean, I'm going to watch it, but like, I, you know, I sometimes wonder, like, am I, am I being a little hypocritical by enjoying this and yet um, taking, taking a strong position against similar things? It's a tough one. I mean, because, I because, uh, you know, if, you know, it's, it, is there a morality where it's right to be cruel for the for the right reasons, right? And I don't know if there is. I mean, I think if the comedy is worth more to you than the morality of it, yeah. Um, I mean, I I mean, I I enjoyed the first Borat movie tremendously. I mean, I, I just I, I love that the guy he picked up that had the bear in the wagon, you know, <laughs> that his name was Hazmat. <laughs> I just love that, you know, and. And so many other things that, that were in the movie that were just fantastic. And but at the same time, um, you know, it made me cringe the the degree to which he took advantage of people, you know, and and their naivete and their generosity or whatever else it might have been. But you know, there's a. Uh, I'll have to see it, oh. and I will see it. Right? Yeah. Of is it in I theaters mean, or is it on the is it on the home screen? It is on I, some streamings. I don't know. I'll have to look that up, actually. Yeah, right. I, I, I just don't remember. I just am aware of it. Yeah. yeah. What's it called? Borat Redux or something like that? No, or? it's something funnier than that. Um, 
I can't remember something movie film. That's all I remember. Subsequent movie, <laughs> yeah, yeah, film. movie film. That is what it's called. Uh, subsequent movie film. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we've discussed uh, a lot of stuff in our uh, uh, movie watching for the weekend that I may or may not cut out because I don't want everybody to know that I'm a terrible person. So. <laughs> No, you can do that. <laughs> they Listen, need to if know. It's a popular the movie. Needs there are a lot know. of terrible people. You know. By the way, he he played a, a very good Abby Hoffman in the oh, yeah. trial of the of the Chicago Seven. That I, was I did really watch good. That. Yeah. He also what was he? Uh, Ellie Cohen, the uh, Israeli spy. That was really good. I thought that movie. Mm. Recommend. That's that, yeah. that's in that movie or in a different movie? No, 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 no. I mean, in a different movie, he played Elika, but he seemed he's oh, transitioned he to all these very serious roles. I mean, I, I yeah. don't remember the name of the movie, but it was a it was about Ellie Cohen going, um, you know, undercover in in Syria. I hope it's Syria. Yeah. It's interesting because he's a seriously tall dude. I mean, he's like yeah. six five or six six something like that, and uh, um. So he stands out. I mean, Abby Hoffman was not a tall guy, but in the movie, you know, here's, he's being played by Borat, right? <laughs> and he's like, <laughs> he's this really tall guy. Uh, but he did a great job. I'm always astonished at how well uh, an actor can nail an accent. I mean, he, he, I mean, he sounds like he's from Worcester, Mass, you know, and, and not from London or wherever, wherever it is that uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is from. Right. You know, same with Eddie Redmayne. Eddie Redmayne yeah. played uh, uh, Tom Hayden very, very well. Uh, it was remarkable. Yeah, really. I, I thought so too. I, I enjoyed the movie. That was very good. Timely. Yeah. Anyway, so okay. do we have anything else to uh, to no, top just off our... Uh, tune in next week when we'll talk about something else. Thanks everyone for listening. Yeah. Thanks for making it this far. Thank you for all of your... Uh, we've gotten quite a few a few uh emails we've gotten some some listener feedback which is really great and we appreciate it and thank you for thank you for subscribing to our newsletter which i forgot to plug and we'll reinsert later uh (laughs) thank you for doing the newsletter it's great thank you kyle i love being here anytime